0: Welcome to Around the World in SDGs, a podcast series by the Intercouncil Network that explores the sustainable development goals through those on the ground. I'm your host, Fahima Gabriel. In this week's episode, we explore SDG 17, partnerships through community-centered collaboration in addressing environmental conservation with our guest, Chris Ryder, Executive Director of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Yukon Chapter. Hi Chris, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Mind sharing with us a little introduction about yourself and the work that you do?
1: Hi, my name is Chris Ryder. I'm the executive director of the Yukon chapter of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, also known as CPOS Yukon. CPOS Yukon is is obviously a the Yukon chapter of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, where an organization that has chapters in every province and territory, as well as a national office in Ottawa, or almost every province and territory, I should say. And we work on protection of lands and waters, uh, as well as oceans. And the really unique thing about Paws as an organization across Canada is the way that we are on the ground in all of the different provinces and territories. Um, and so we have the ability to work in ways that is really different to a lot of other organizations that do environmental or conservation work because we we, we know the communities, we have the opportunity to build those deep and lasting relationships. Um, and it's one of the things that makes me really proud to work for CIPOS. And here in the Yukon, we've, we've been running since around 1993. And we were originally formed in order to start work to protect an area called the Peel Watershed, which is in the uh, northeast of the Yukon. Um, we did that in partnership with the Yukon Conservation Society and, and all of the First Nations who have traditional territory in the Peel. And that, that was a roughly uh, 30 year campaign in the end because uh, we, we've we still haven't completely finished it, uh, but we had a huge uh, campaign success with that um, just in 2019. So um, it's been a long, a long campaign and we've learned a lot from it. It's, it's been really exciting for, for me to be part of.
0: How does the work of your chapter differ from other regional chapters in Canada?
1: So here in the Yukon, and this is where I can use the, the best example because it's where I know We are based in Whitehorse. Um, We're not based in Toronto or Ottawa or um, any of the other um, major cities uh, that that doesn't really have that deep connection with a place like the Yukon. And so we have a really great. I I think we have a really great understanding of the community here, uh, but also. A lot of our work, probably the majority of our work is based on the relationships we have here. Um, and a lot of that is with the First Nation communities that we work in. Um, here in the Yukon, it's it's a little bit different to most of Southern Canada because all but three First Nations have signed final agreements, which are basically modern treaties. And those modern treaties outline the way that a lot of things work in the territory. Um, They provide self-government agreements and they also outline a very specific land use planning process that's embedded within the final agreement, which means land use planning here in the Yukon is is actually constitutionally protected. And we went in 2017, we actually went to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, CPOs along with other organiza- another organization in town, the Yukon Conservation Society, together with the First Nation of Nacho Dunn, uh, together with Trondek Gwich'in and the Winter Gwich'in First Nation in Og Crow, um, in the Northern Yukon, we actually took Yukon government to, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada in order to protect that constitutional land use planning um, and that land use planning process, I should say. And it's one of the things that I think I'm most proud of in terms of the work that we've been able to do, because in order to do that, it, it required so many, so much trust and, and strength of relationships that had been built uh, and, and largely by people before me, um, but the relationships that our organization had to develop with the First Nations to do that is is just really an important part of the work that we do here. Um, and I think, From what I understand, that was actually the first time that we've ever had conservation organizations and First Nations um, stand together at the Supreme Court of Canada as co-litigants, and and that's something I will always be so proud of.
0: So... um... What's interesting is that, as you mentioned before, co-litigants, so like both of you are, are both groups or organizations and communities had actually banded together under one one cause, one movement. Um, are there other examples that you have experience in which that has led to the success of your objectives in regards to conservation?
1: Yeah, um, it's a really great question. and. I think one of the things when I think about conservation a- and our sector, I can't step away from what is essentially an incredibly colonialist history of the conservation um, conservationist movement from its very beginnings. Uh, you would essentially have, frankly, a-, a bunch of white men who would look on a map or who would look at some particular wildlife interest or something like that Uh, they would draw some lines on a map and they would say okay here is a park and that has happened across the world for decades and and decades and there was never uh, a concern about whether or not the the first nations who'd been people or or Inuit or Métis people um, in many cases who'd been living in in a sense of, I guess, harmony with those lands for millennia, um, there was never a concern about what impact it would have on them because basically um, the, the conservationists had just said, well, this is what's happening and, and that's, that's what, what it is. Um, and so people were expropriated from the lands that they'd hunted for millennia. Um, and we've seen that all across Canada Um, And and in the Yukon, the the establishment of uh, Kluwani National Park is a great example of that where um, the lines were drawn and and First Nations people were told, this is not a place that you can be anymore. And so I think one of the things that our sector is having to go through right now is a reckoning as we start to both grapple with that um, problematic history and look at the ways that we should be working now. And to me, that means that we should <laughs> we, we need to look at where we're first Nations. We need to ask the questions, what is it that to a first nation? what is it that your conservation goals are? What would you like to achieve um, within your traditional territory? And then I see it as our, our role to a large extent to, to help provide the support to achieve those goals. Um, because to me, that is, not just the way that we can succeed in conservation in 2020, but it's it's just kind of the the good way to work. Um, and I always I always think back to an elder, um, a Winterquitchin elder, Lorraine Nitro, um, who is someone who I am so privileged to know. Um, and she's been working on the campaign to protect the Arctic refuge in Alaska. Um, which is the carving grounds of the porcupine caribou herd, which the Gwich'in people across Alaska and Northwest Territories have had just such a strong, profound relationship with, with those caribou for, for decades. And, and there's been a long, um, long history of work to protect that area and many, many threats. Um, and one of the things Lorraine Nitro has said to me on many occasions is we have to do this work in a good way. And that was the advice that her elders gave her um, 30, 40 years ago um, when that campaign started. And I think about that a lot. And I think about, are we doing this in a good way? Or are we doing this in in a way that is less good, for lack of a better word? Um, And I think anytime we, as again, as people who are working to protect land and wildlife, we need to be asking ourselves that question, are we doing this in a good way? And and that fundamentally involves, has to include the collaboration with First Nations people uh, as well as Inuit and MAT and making sure that we're doing that work in a way that um, supports their goals and interests. And if we're not, I think there's a problem in the way we're working. And, And the other thing I think is really important to acknowledge is When it comes to the relationships that an organization like ours has um, with First Nations, um, it takes years to build those relationships and it can take moments to destroy them. And so it's something we have to be constantly conscious of. And and again, coming back to what I was saying earlier, constantly thinking, are we doing this in a right way? Are we listening? Are we learning? Um, Are we trying to speak for First Nations or, are we are we doing this in, in a good way and, and we try to always do it in a good way and as I said I think sometimes we make mistakes um, and we have to try and learn from those but um, I, I hope for the most part we're we're succeeding.
0: Two years ago you campaigned for the Royal Bank of Canada to stop fund funding drilling in the Calvin grounds of the porcupine caribou along with representative from the Gwich'in First Nation. Could you share more about that campaign with us?
1: So we're relative newcomers to the campaign to protect the Arctic Refuge, actually. It's a campaign that's been going for literally decades. Um, And the Arctic Refuge is an area, it's it's in the south, sorry, the northeast of Alaska um, on the the north slope. Um, So basically it's it's a coastal region in Alaska and it's the carving ground for the porcupine caribou herd, which is a herd of uh, barren ground caribou, and they have the longest land mammal migration on earth. So right now there's about 200,000 of these caribou, and every year they they go to the Arctic Refuge, um, and a little bit to the north, to the west in, um, sorry, to the east in uh, the Yukon, and, and they go to, they have their young every year, and the Arctic Refuge, an area called the 1002 lands, um, are just, the perfect carving grounds for them to forage for food, um, to be relatively protected from uh, predators. And so every year they'll travel there. Um, it's just an incredibly important place uh, for the Caribou. It's, it's referred to by the, the Gwich'in people as the sacred place where life begins um, because, of, because it is so important for the porcupine Caribou herd. And then every year, uh, many of them will migrate um, as I said, it's the longest land mammal migration on earth and they'll go into the Yukon, they'll winter in the Yukon and into the Northwest Territories and then they'll travel back every, every year, they'll, they'll travel back to have those young. And there's been a long threat to those lands uh, from uh, largely the US government who's, and the Alaskan government who've wanted to open it up to oil and gas drilling. And in 2017, in, in Donald Trump's tax act, he introduced a bill that would open up the arctic refuge to drilling and it's, it's really the closest it's ever come um, to the drilling finally actually happening despite people working. Um, there's been groups like the Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society, Audubon Society, as well as uh, a number of Alaskan groups um, um, working together with the Alaskan Gwich'in um, through the uh, the Gwich'in Steering Committee, which is which is based in Alaska, um, in order to, to try and protect those lands. And then um, as we, at was it was also around the same time in 2017, we'd been working on the Peel Watershed campaign for for decades. And as part of that work, we'd been um, working with Buntik Gwich'in First Nation, um, because they have traditional territory in the Peel Watershed. And as we started to get to a point where we're like, we're, we're needing to work a little bit less on this. Is there's some other things that are really important for us to focus on? We had um, some conversations with uh, with the chief and, and former counsellor, um, Dana Tram, who's, who's now chief Dana Tram, um, about whether or not there would be a role or whether there would be a need, whether we could be helpful. And, um, ultimately, um, Chief tram invited us to be part of the, the big um, campaign alongside all of those Alaskan and US groups and the, um, the Gwich'in steering committee. And, and since that time, we've worked really closely with uh, particularly Vluntuk Gwich'in uh, First Nation out of Old Crow in the Yukon uh, to, to do what we can to raise the profile of the issue in Canada um, and to basically provide that Transboundary kind of pressure in any way we can, and and one of the things um, one of the things we often talk about is like the caribou um, they don't realize there's a, bo- a border there. Um, they don't have like little caribou passports that they uh, have someone checking every time they cross. Um, they they don't realize that um, that Canada and the U.S. are separate because it's all just part of their uh, migratory route. Um, and so that's why we wanted to make sure that that people sort of had a, an understanding that what happens there in Alaska also affects the Yukon and particularly the Gwich'in people in, um, in the Yukon and Northwest Territories, as well as like many, many other people who, who every year go and rely on that herd. They go to hunt uh, the herd and that fills their freezes for the winter um, and so, one of the things that they'd been working on in the U.S. was a campaign to ask U.S. banks to commit to not funding drilling in the Arctic Refuge. And uh, so, so C4s, myself, and uh, Malcolm Boothroyd, who's who's our lead campaigner on this program, and um, just one of the most creative people you'll ever, ever meet, um, and as well as uh, um, Lorraine Nitro and and. Um, Liz Staples who works with Wintukwich in government uh, and the chief were all like should we do something like that in Canada and uh, we, we agreed to and that we would do it and we would see what we could do to just make sure that the Canadian banks were committing to not, um, to not drilling and so la- December 2019 um, we travelled to Toronto uh, myself, Malcolm Liz as well as um, councillor Cheryl Charlie and a, a youth councillor from, um, from the Gwich'in Tribal Council in the Northwest Territories um, and we travelled to uh, Toronto and we went and we had meetings with um, the five big Canadian banks um, and it was, it was quite, re- quite interesting to, to go in and um, RBC took us up to their main corner meeting room Um, it was one of the first meetings we had and it was like on the top and we're like overlooking um, the Toronto skyline and CN Tower and it was just like quite amazing to have traveled from from here in Whitehorse to now like all of a sudden be in this like corner meeting room with RBC but it it was really interesting because what it told us was you know they're they're treating us seriously this is really um, really uh, quite cool that like they're not just like the people we're meeting with care about this. Um, and, and we found that with some of the banks and um, we, we kept working on this for, for about a year. And uh, it was amazing that within, I think about eight or 10 months, RBC had made a commitment to never fund drilling in the Arctic Refuge. And by the end of last year, every major bank in Canada had, had followed suit. And every bank in Canada has now made a commitment that they will never fund drilling in the Arctic Refuge. Um, and and it was funny because we told everyone, we think maybe we can get one bank in a year, and, and maybe within two or three years we'll we'll get them all. And then all of a sudden, every single bank in Canada had uh, had agreed, and we were just like, wow, that was that was a good campaign. So yeah, it was really fun to work on, and uh, it was a, a huge a huge success, and and this really helped put pressure on um, on anyone who was thinking of, of drilling in the Arctic Refuge.
0: And what do you attribute to the success of that campaign?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting um, to think about what it was. Um, and when we went and met with them, um, we had um, a little bit of a, a strategy for how we would talk, how we would sort of um, raise the issue. Um, and um, essentially, we spoke with them for a long time about the, the cultural values. And, and obviously that was led by, um, by uh, Geraldine, the youth representative um, from uh, um, from the Northwest Territories of Gwich'in and from Councillor Ch- Charlie. Um, they spoke about the importance of protecting for cultural reasons and the impact it would have on the Gwich'in people. And then uh, Malcolm and I, we really focused in on uh, why any investment in the Arctic Refuge would just be a terrible financial investment and why it would bring with it huge risk, if both reputationally and um, frankly financial risk, like trying to drill in the Arctic um, when the price of oil is tanking um, is a terrible financial uh, decision. And so we went with that to two tiered approach on basically trying to say, this is both the right choice for you to make uh, ethically. And it's also a really, like it's a no brainer when it comes to the actual financial side of it. Um, And and I think, I like to think that hopefully it was the the way that we sort of um, shared that message um, that was resonated and and, um, helped, the people who we were meeting with, and, and a lot of those people were the sustainability people in the banks, and they, they do care. Um, and so I think what we're able to do was help give them uh, uh, those two good reasons why the bank should make that decision, and it was nice to see that they, they ultimately made the right choice.
0: So it seems that having a personal lens to the issue from those most connected to it is what really attributed to the success, um, mm-hmm. really stressing the importance of conservation organizations to work with and in support of indigenous communities and peoples genuinely. From your experience, what sort of advice would you give to conservation organizations in, in towards going towards this approach?
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the really important things there is we could never have spoken to the cultural values and and those incredibly important reasons for why the arctic refuge needs to be protected, um, for the way of life that was threatened by drilling in the arctic refuge. It's not something we as a conservation organization could authentically speak to um, and it's something we should never speak to because it's not our story to tell and so being able to go together um with um with Cheryl and Geraldine and have them speak about those issues so that the bank was hearing that directly from the from people who would be so profoundly affected um, was incredibly important and I think I mean, that speaks to one of the things that I've heard over and over and over again um, from uh, First Nations people we've worked with is essentially, you never speak for us. You have a platform and you can use that platform to help elevate our voices. But you can never speak for us because it's not your right to do so. And I think that's one of the most important things I've learned is about how do we how do we use the use what we have to help amplify the voices of the um, the people we are working um, to support. And when you do that, I mean, it's just it's far more powerful, um, and it's it's just again it's just the right way to do things. So I think that's one of the most important things I've learned, um, and also to be really conscious of. Um, there's also been, I think, a history within again, like, and this is a recent history within the conservation um, sector of of almost divide and conquer when it comes to First Nations that that people will look for um, look for folks who really support what they want. Um, People to say, and so they'll amplify those voices and just kind of push other voices to the side. And and the people, it might not be representative of the reality in a community. And so I think being really conscious of, uh, again, that asking that question: Am I doing this in a good way for the right reasons? And am I actually listening um, to what the communities want? And I think those are two really Important questions um, to for us to always keep asking ourselves, um, and, and I I have like I feel really strongly that when it comes to um, our goal, which is largely protection of wild spaces, protection of land, waters, wildlife, um, we go to that in an authentic way, but but also at the same time, if a if a we do that in a way. We, we basically say, well, "What is it that you want to protect, and we can help achieve that." Um, and and if a First Nation um, is looking to develop an area, um, I just kind of feel like even if we feel like that's an area that we we would like to see protected, um, it's not. We it's not our place to to advocate against that. There's been just this long history of uh, um, settlers telling um, First Nations people what they can and can't do with their land. Um, So I really see our role is, is, again, is to support, provide that support. And there's so much work um, that I think being able to just listen and and work in a where we're wanted and where we can be helpful is, there's enough of that that we don't need to, uh, to try and act in that kind of old old school way of conservation.
0: COVID-19 has taken a priority, making other things like addressing climate change and conservation a secondary priority. How has the pandemic impacted the work that you do?
1: It's a really great question. Um, and I think one of the things one of the things that COVID-19 has, I think, reminded many of us is the concept of of one health. Um, and and the connectedness between the health of the land, the health of water um, and human health, um, and how important nature is for us as as humans. Um, And (laughs) living here in the Yukon, we've been really lucky. I mean, partly because uh, we've had a comparatively small number of cases here uh, which has given us um, a lot less, um, a lot less of that kind of deep, profound fear that maybe um, folks in Toronto have, where they're surrounded by it. It also means that because there's less, maybe maybe it's a little bit more like a uh, a boogeyman in a closet, where we can't see it as much. So so there's it affects in other ways of making it sometimes more scary, um, but. At the same time, we've been really lucky in the way that we've been able to um, still get out and uh, explore um, the land and wilderness, and particularly in the summer here. Um, we've been really lucky, and I think that's kept a lot of people um, in a better place than we might've been um, if we hadn't been able to go out and if we weren't somewhere with so much nature around us. So I think COVID-19 is really, reinforced, in some ways, it's reinforced the importance of the work that we're trying to do. Because without nature, um, our health will suffer. Um, and, and even in places like Toronto, Vancouver, um, and then there's just the practicalities of, it's obviously made work harder. There was just, a, I think, a profound sense of exha- exhaustion from all of us for the last um, year or so. Um, that's just really difficult to recover from. Um, And then just those little things like the ability to have um, face-to-face meetings with folks um, and travel up into the communities and um, meet with elders, meet uh, face-to-face with uh, chief and council or or others, um, has been severely limited uh, and just made much more difficult.
0: In close, what do you think Canada should do in the area of partnerships to protect our land and waters?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there's lots of ways uh, and the way, but the way that I think I can probably speak best to is um, thinking about that role of of nature and connectedness. I, I know that Canada has committed to protecting 25% 25% of the land by 20 land and water by 2025 and uh, 30% by 2030. Um, and I think one of the most important things that Canada can start doing is to start now in 2021 thinking about how both how important that is to achieve, but also how they can achieve it. Um, and to me, that involves a lot of partnership. It involves thinking about the time it takes for um, conservation initiatives to to happen and to start now um, supporting uh, First Nations um, and even provincial and territorial governments so that they're in a position to be from from right now working towards um, that 2030 target. One of the things I felt, uh, I mean, I've lived in Canada, I'm originally Australian, I've lived in, Canada for the last 10 years. And one of the things I felt is that there's this outward idea that Canada is a nature country while also having this like determination to destroy it um, through um, mining, oil and gas development in ways that aren't sustainable. And so for Canada to now start thinking about, okay, this is part of our identity. This is part of who we want to be. How do we work towards that now? Um, And how do we make sure that First Nations Um, and and provincial, territorial, and even uh, um, municipal governments are are really well positioned to achieve that. I mean, frankly, a lot of that will take money um, and time and patience and just making sure the resources are there. And I think, I just, I'm genuinely convinced that if we can start doing that now with that long-term view, um, Canada can achieve amazing things and become such a global leader. and I think it's something that we should be aspiring towards.
0: And if people want to learn a little bit more about your organization and the work that you do, where can they find you? Uh,
1: they can find us online at www.cpawsucon.org uh, or on all of the usual social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. at, uh, at c It's a really cool organization to work for and um, everyone across this country is doing really exciting work. So um, hopefully you can learn more.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Chris, for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to catch us weekly for more great stories from those on the ground addressing the SDGs. I'm your host, Fahima Gabrel, and you've been listening to Around the World in SDGs, a podcast series by the Intercouncil Network, and a project made possible with the financial support of the Government of Canada.